Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today we're going to be kicking off a new sermon series based out of Matthew chapters 11 and 12. And this series is titled First Responders. Now, the the inspiration for this title really comes from something that we're all quite familiar with, and that is uh, the first responders that show up on the scene of various events and provide assistance. I know I remember back in uh, 1995 on one April day where I was listening to the radio getting ready to go to class at OU and they came on the radio and said that there had been an earthquake in downtown Oklahoma City. Of course, it hadn't been an earthquake. Those would start years later, right? There hadn't been an earthquake. Uh, what, what happened at that time was that the bomb had gone off at the Murrah building and that shook our city. It shook our state. It shook many of your individual lives. And I spent most of the rest of that day watching the news reports as these first responders, police and fire and ambulance, ran to the scene of the accident. And as I saw them walk across the broken glass and dig through the rubble, I found an inspiration in how I might be able to respond. And I don't know, many of you may have felt that well up in you as well. Even just this last weekend, we've seen the first responders with the wildfires in northwest Oklahoma. You went outside Friday night and thought your house was on fire, didn't you? Um, But it was these fires in northwest Oklahoma. Just a reminder for us of those who were out fighting that, those first responders that showed up. And what I see inside of Scripture in the New Testament is that there were some first responders to Jesus, not police, fire, and medical professionals, but there were some who rushed to the scene of Jesus' appearance and responded first to his message. And as we look at the response of these folks, I think that we can find some inspiration and some admonishment into how you and I could respond to Jesus as well. You know, sometimes they're positive examples. We're we're familiar with these. We've probably heard a number of of sermons in our life or been a part of a number of Bible studies in our life where we've looked at people like Peter and James and John and their response in following Jesus. There's those kinds of positive examples. But what we have in Matthew 11 and 12 is a reminder that some of those first responders to the message of Jesus were people that had questions, even some who flat out rejected Jesus. Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And I think looking at their response to Jesus, we are challenged that we would respond in the right way. Because I believe Jesus is is calling out to each of us today. And the question is, when he calls, will we answer? We're going to look at that over the next several weeks in this series. And today we're going to kick that off by looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. So if you've got a Bible, open up. We're going to spend our time in Matthew 11, 1 through 19 today, looking at Jesus' interaction with John the Baptist and some of John's followers. Matthew 11, 1 through 19. I'll read these verses for us, and then we'll back up and see three things by looking at this passage together. Matthew 11, 1 says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. 
Now, you might remember a number of months ago, we were in a sermon series back in Matthew chapter 10, and we saw in Matthew 10, Jesus gave a message to his disciples, and he told them to go out, kind of commissioned them to go into the regions of Galilee and to preach the good news. And so he sends them out to to preach this message, and as they go, it says here in chapter 11, verse 1, that Jesus followed along after them to interact with those that his followers had ministered to. So by saying that he went to their cities, he wasn't saying that he went to their hometowns. He was saying he went to the places where they had gone in ministry. Verse 2, as he was there, it says, this happened to him. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Well, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played a flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds." Friends, in these 19 verses today, I want us to see three things about how we might respond to Jesus. The first thing I want us to see is this. Our context confuses our convictions. Our context confuses our convictions. Now, we see this in the example of John the Baptist and his interaction with Jesus inside of this this passage. Now, when we look at this passage and we think of John's response, uh, we first want to ask the question, why is John not there? It says that John sent some of his disciples, some of his followers, he, he mobilized them and said, go ask Jesus this question. Why did John not just go himself? Well, the reason why John didn't go is because John was in prison. It tells us that in the beginning of verse 2. But why was John in prison? Well, a little later on in Matthew chapter 14, we find out that John was in prison because in his preaching ministry, he had called out Herod Antipas. And he had said, Herod, your marriage 
to Herodias, your brother's wife, is unlawful before God. And he didn't just say that once, he said it repeatedly. And because of that, Herod Antipas got so fed up with John the Baptist, he had him arrested and placed in prison. And so John finds himself in prison while Jesus is continuing his ministry up in Galilee. And so John doesn't go himself because he can't. He's in a cell, so he sends his followers. And the reason why John had some followers to send is because while John was in prison, his disciples, John's followers, are coming and hanging out with him some. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 18, it says that his followers were coming to him and telling him some of the things that Jesus was up to. And so because of that, John says, well, those things are happening out there, and yet I'm back here in this prison, I've got a question. And so he sends his disciples to ask this question. Well, what was the question that John asked? His question was really quite simple. His question was this, are you the one? He says, go ask Jesus, are you the one? He says that in verse 3. Now, what did, did John mean when he said, are you the one? I think John was hearkening back to when he first identified Jesus back in Matthew chapter 3. He talked about Jesus in, in a way that, that he was the one. John said, I baptize you with water for repentance. This is Matthew chapter 3. But he who is coming after me, the one who is coming after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. See, John believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They be- he believed that he was the Savior of the world. And yet, while John found himself in prison, and Jesus' ministry was continuing out there in Galilee, John was going, hey, what is going on? This is not playing out the way I had anticipated. So ask Jesus, did I get it wrong? Is he really the one? Is he really the Messiah? Is he really the Savior of the world? Or should I expect somebody else? Now, friends, when you see that question, it ought to challenge us to ask another question. Of all people in the world, why was John the Baptist asking that question? Because think about all that John had experienced in his life. His background set him up to know the answer to that question. Think about this. John really came from one of the very first Christian homes. Why do I I say that? He's from a Christian home because Jesus was in his home. Okay, uh, when, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, was pregnant with Jesus, she goes to Elizabeth's house, who was John's mother, and John was in Elizabeth's womb, Jesus was in Mary's womb, and John, in, in his mother's womb, begins to leap about when Jesus and Mary walk in, okay? So just go with me. It's a Christian home because Christ was in the home, okay? You with me? All right, still awake. Okay, good. So from the very beginning, now here's the thing. That's not just a one-off event. Can you imagine that story being told around the breakfast table a few times as John grew up? Hey, your cousin? Your cousin? Remember that time? No, you don't remember you were in utero, but I'm telling you, you leaped. You leaped, John. You leaped. He's the one. Mary sang a song right here in our living room about this whole thing. John grew up with that knowledge. A little later on in Matthew chapter 3, John has the privilege of baptizing Jesus in the Jordan and the Spirit descending and the voice of God from heaven, front row to these events. 
John recognized Jesus as the one who would bring salvation. He, he actually says in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's the one who made that declaration as he saw Jesus walk by. Not only that, but, but John encouraged his followers to follow Jesus. As Jesus came about, John said to those who were hanging out with him, Hey, go hang out with him instead. One of those guys was Andrew, who brought with him one of his his very famous brothers, named who? Peter, right? John had this role early on in pointing people to Christ, and as Jesus' ministry was ascending, and as the crowds at Jesus' events was exceeding the crowd at John's events, John's disciples come to him in John chapter 3, and they said, hey, what's up? He's getting a bigger draw than you are right now. And John said, hey, he must increase and I must decrease. See, John the Baptist was not just some old guy. He was somebody that was front and center to have knowledge of who Jesus was that nobody else really at that time had. Because of his background, he was set up to know the answer. And yet it's John who is here asking the question. And so the question is, well, why? Why was John, of all people, asking this question? And the answer is because of his context. His context was confusing his convictions. See, John found himself in prison. And the, the confines of that prison cell obscured the bars of those, of those walls, obscured his vision of who Jesus was. It was confusing his conviction that he was the Messiah. Well, why? Because John had a belief that when Messiah came, that the judgment of God would follow All the way back again in in Matthew chapter 3, when he talked about what was going to happen when Jesus showed up, he says in verse 10, even now the axe is laid root to the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. John was saying, hey, when Messiah shows up, when he steps on the scene, the judgment of God will follow. And yet, as John sat there in the prison cell, in that context, you know what he was thinking? How come I'm the only one in prison? If Messiah is going to set things right, if Messiah is going to bring justice upon the earth, why am I the servant of God in prison while Herod is sitting on a throne? And so John asked the question because his context was confusing his convictions. Now, friends, when you think about that reality, let me just ask you, does that ever happen to you? Does your, does your context ever confuse your convictions? You, know, you, you go to vacation Bible school growing up, and you learn about God being sovereign, and you sing songs about it, and you celebrate it, and you come to church, and we sing songs, and we read verses about the sovereignty of God, but then your, your life begins to fall apart. You lose your job. Your money disappears, and you have to begin to ask the question, well, wait, do I really believe in the sovereignty of God? I mean, what, what's happening here? Your context is confusing your convictions. We, we read these stories of Jesus performing all these miracles, all these things that he's doing um, as, he, as he walks about, and we talk about God having this miracle-working power. But what happens when your child is the one who dies, or your spouse dies before their time, and, and you're left with this grief and this pain? Is God really powerful? Does God really care? Your context is confusing your convictions. We talk about God being holy. We talk about him being good and wise. 
And that's all well and good until the thing that we want to do is what God says don't do. And suddenly we're challenged with this deal where our context is confusing our convictions. Friends, this is something that happened to John. It's something that happens to me. And I know from my conversations with many of you, it's something that happens to you too. We we can relate in this story, can't we? Well, what do we do when we find our context confusing our convictions? Well, the passage continues and lets us know. It tells us that our convictions are cast in Christ. Our convictions are cast in Christ. In other words, there is something stable that we can cement our convictions in. And it's not in our feelings. It's not in our, our, our ideas. It's not in our imagination. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself through the person of Christ, and because of that, we can cement our convictions around him. Now, how does Jesus show this in the passage? Well, he shows it by the question comes to him, and Jesus doesn't just say, hey, hey guys, you know, uh, the, John's disciples come and say, hey, Jesus, are you the one, or is there another one coming? Jesus doesn't just says, I'm the one, I'll see you, and walk away. He doesn't say that. Instead, what does he do? He says, tell John this, verse 4. Tell him what you see and hear. In other words, not just take my word for it, but look around at what is unfolded in your midst. So the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus says, my life has demonstrated my identity as the Messiah, the Son of God, the one. Don't just take my word for it. Look around and see the demonstration of the reality of who I am. And Jesus does more even than just say, look around and see what happens. But Jesus uses very specific language to say, as you look around, this is what you're going to see. And the things he references in verses 4 and 5 are the very things referenced in prophecy in Isaiah 29, 18 and 19, in Isaiah 35, 4 through 6. What Jesus was saying was, look around and see that prophecy is being fulfilled in your day. God said this would happen, and this is happening, and you can verify it by what you see. Jesus was encouraging John to cement his convictions, to cast them in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus continues on in verses 16 through 19, and he he says something interesting at the end of this. He, he, He says, you know, we have this temptation to just follow the whims of this world. But the reality is this world in which we live is quite fickle and we can't base our convictions on it because the tune is always changing. Jesus says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. In other words, the world is always asking us to to do something different. Kids saying, hey, come with us. We're going to have a wedding and they're playing a song and they want you to dance. And then come with us. We're going to pretend there's a funeral. We want you to do this. And Jesus said, the world is always going to be asking you to do different things and to change your tune. And so you can't base your convictions on something that fickle because a world that fickle doesn't have a good perspective to recognize the work of God. The evidence of that is that the world rejected two people quite different, John and Jesus. Verse 18, John came neither eating nor drinking, 
and they say he's crazy. And Jesus said, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. At the end of verse 19, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. What Jesus was encouraging John and encouraging people to do was to anchor their convictions back to what is revealed through the deeds of God, prophesied in Scripture, and confirming the identity that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Now, friends, as we sit here today and we have a need for us to get out of our context and to cement or cast our convictions in something solid, we need to follow the examples and admonishment given inside of this passage by Jesus himself. We need to cast our convictions in him. Well, how can we do that? Well, one of the ways we can do that is by looking back on the evidence that Jesus left. Jesus said to John's disciples, look at my life and look at the outflow of my life and what I have done, and that will show you proof that I am who I said that I am. And we certainly can do that as we look at the testimony about Jesus in the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But I I would go even one further. There actually is, is evidence, friends, inside of our world that Jesus really was resurrected from the grave. And historians, as they look back at the events of the first century, actually are in agreement on three basic facts. The first fact is that there really was a Jesus of Nazareth, that he lived, that he died, that he was buried, and that the tomb is now empty. Historians agree on this fact. The second thing that historians agree about is that the disciples had interactions after Jesus was buried with somebody that they believe was the resurrected Christ. Historians are in agreement about that. And the third thing that there's agreement about is that based on a belief that Jesus was resurrected from the grave, Christianity grew amidst intense persecution. Now, given that evidence, there's one of three possibilities that that good, honest scholarship can come to. Uh, One of those possibilities is that the disciples were uh, deceived in some way. In other words, they they saw somebody that they thought was Christ, but it wasn't Christ. They'd been duped by an actor seeking to mock them in some way. Uh, A second possibility is that they were deceivers. They knew that Jesus wasn't resurrected. They took his body and they hid it someplace, and they were living out a lie. It's a second possibility. But the third possibility is that they were witnesses to the reality of a resurrected Son of God. Now, friends, as you look at the evidence of history, it sure looks like a strong argument for the reality of a resurrected Jesus. When we think of having our convictions cemented in something solid, we can, one of the things that we can do is we can look back at the person of Jesus and find hope in his identity and the evidence that he left. Second thing I think we can do as we look at this passage is we can listen to the testimony of others. You know, John needed to listen to the testimony of his followers that brought this news back to hear what was happening in their midst. And you know what? We need to listen as well, don't we? When we find ourselves alone and isolated because of the pain and the challenges of our life and our context, one of the ways that our convictions become solid is we listen to how God is working in other people's lives. This is why community is so important. 
That's why isolation is so, so deadly. Because if in, in isolation, the only way I can find out that God is working is just in my life. But when I gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ in church and small group and Sunday school and those kinds of things, what I hear is stories of how God is at work. And while I may have had a dry week, somebody else may have been drinking from the fountain, right? And we can be reminded of the work of God in our midst and in our lives. One of the things that we can do to cement our convictions around Christ is listen to the testimonies of others. And the third thing that we can do in the midst of this is look into God's Word. Jesus quotes Isaiah to articulate that he was who he said he was, that he was the one. The same way we can study God's Word together and be reminded of this truth that God is at work and that he has revealed himself to us. Friends, our context confuses our convictions, but our convictions can be firmed up as we cast them in cement in the person of Jesus Christ. But there's a third thing I want us to see, and that is this. Our Christ covers our concerns. Our Christ covers our concerns. Now, I think this is fascinating because what happens when John comes and asks the question through his followers of Jesus, what does Jesus do next? We've already seen that he says, look around, tell them what you see. We, We see that he answers the question, but what does Jesus do next? I think this is really instructive because as people who are gathered here today, I look out at a number of Christ followers. Don't you want to know what Jesus does after we ask a question and then we leave the room? Don't you want to know how God responds? Well, what does Jesus do? After John's followers leave, does Jesus give a dramatic, massive eye roll and go, John? Does he just throw his hands up and say, I can't believe that guy? All the things we've been through, and then this, he doesn't do that at all, does he? What does he do? He goes about defending John. He defends him. It's it's an incredible defense, beginning in verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses, not in king's prisons. What then did you go out to see? Jesus is is asking the question. He's he's like, if you think that John is some limp person being blown about by all the winds of public opinion, you got the wrong guy. Jesus is coming to his defense. He says, John's in a tough spot, but it's not because he's some limp reed. And it's not because he's trying to get on Herod's good side. He's in prison because of his faithfulness and testimony to me. He's just asking a question because it's not all adding up to him. Jesus says, who is John? He says, John's a prophet. Now, that's a big deal. It's a big deal not just to be a prophet, but to think about this. There hadn't been a prophet in Israel for hundreds of years. John was the first in a long time. John comes and Jesus says, yeah, I tell you, he's a prophet. And guess what? He's even more than a prophet. He's the specific prophet that Malachi 3.1 told you about that there would be one who would come before me and prepare the way. Verse 10. And Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, friends, that is a pretty doggone strong defense. If you have a question in your context and you're afraid to ask Jesus, this is the Jesus that you're asking. 
You're asking the Jesus that loves you, welcomes your question, provides an answer, and then comes to your defense in the face of your enemies. Friends, that's what Jesus does. Well, after he comes to his defense, Jesus makes this statement. He says, he he now is going to begin to explain why John's in prison. He says, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In other words, there's an opportunity for you and I. We'll talk about that in a moment. Then he says this. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. What Jesus is saying is he says, guess what? John's in prison because the offer of the kingdom of heaven is being rejected by your leaders. Jesus came to usher in the kingdom, and yet the Jewish leaders rejected it. What's the evidence of that? The violence that they perpetrated against John. What's the evidence of that? John will eventually be beheaded for his perspective. What's the evidence of that? Jesus, who is the Messiah, will eventually be arrested and then nailed to a cross. That's the evidence of the violence and the rejection of the offer that God was making. Even though the prophets and the law had talked about it, verse 13, again and again and again, when it shows up on the scene, it's rejected by the leaders of Israel. Amazing to see this transpire. And then Jesus says this really fascinating thing in verse 14. He says, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. What you see in verse 14 is Jesus talking about another prophecy inside of Malachi where it talks about John the Baptist being a forerunner before Messiah who would be in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But in that prophecy in Malachi, when it talks about the one coming in the spirit and power of Elijah before the coming of Jesus, it talks about the judgment of God quickly following, the kingdom of God quickly being established right after, repentance and people turning back to God that that accompany that event. And so Jesus here is, is explaining why John is in prison. He says, John assumed that when I showed up that all of this would take place at one time. Let me tell you why it's not. Because I'm being rejected. And because I'm being rejected, just as John is rejected, there's going to be a delay in the establishment of the kingdom on the earth. That's what Jesus says. That's why he's suffering harm. That's why Jesus is saying, I'm fixing to suffer harm. Why there will be a delay of some thousands of years and counting before the kingdom is fully established on the earth because of the rejection of God's people. Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. So you have ears? Let's hear what this says. What it's saying is that there's an opportunity for us to be in a favored spot in the kingdom of God. There's an opportunity for us to, as John saw Jesus and looked to him, there's an opportunity for us to be intimately connected to him, not one day, but two day in this life. There's an opportunity for us to not be like those who first responded to Jesus with rejection, but there's an opportunity for us to be people who are not offended, verse 6, by his coming. 
but instead to embrace by faith his identity as the Son of God and accept his sacrifice on the cross as the payment for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God forever. Friends, that's the offer. But it requires a response. How are you responding to this message? If you respond to this message in faith, trusting in Christ, guess what? The Jesus who defended John will be the Jesus who defends you, not just here and now, but in eternity before God. That when we get there, he says, no, they're with me. Not because of their good deeds, not because of their greatness, but they're with me. Jesus will defend us before God because of what he has done for us. Friends, how are you responding the person of Christ today. From this passage, I'm encouraged to remind all of us to respond in faith. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather and to worship with your people. Thank you for the truth of this this great passage that reminds us that the offer of life that you extend must be received by us in time. Father, may we not be like those who violently reject it, but may we be like John, who though our context is confused, believe that you are the one, the son of the living God, that you are offering us forgiveness of sins because your death made the payment and are offering us eternal life in your father's house as a gift of your grace. Lord, give us the faith to believe, every one of us, every heart in this room, that we would surrender our lives before you, that we would lay them down, that you would lift us up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.